Hey, you're going. <laughs> uh, I don't know what it is about Revelation, but I feel like there's been more kind of spiritual attack around trying to prepare for this preaching uh, through Revelation, maybe any other book that we've done. So anyway, you can take that for what it's worth. Uh, I'm just going to pray because it is such an awesome book. It's an intense book. Uh, I'm going to pray about it, I think. Father, I want to thank you for your word, for this book of Revelation. It's, uh, it's an amazing book. It's, it's a confronting book. It's a book that really confronts and puts our face into the reality of the living Lord Jesus, of spiritual, supernatural things, of the flimsy and fragile reality that we dwell in. It's an amazing book full of judgment, but also redemption and hope. It's your book. It's your words. I sometimes wonder how John would preach it if he was here. I sometimes wonder how you yourself would preach it if you were here. I just pray, Lord, that the words today would be your words. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you know, we're going through the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, and we're up to Revelation 9 today. So a few weeks ago, you can have a look online there. Ben took us through Revelation 8, and you'll quickly note that Revelation 9 is really part two of Revelation 8, which is the seven trumpets, the seven judgment trumpets. And so what I thought I'd do today as you turn to Revelation 9 is I would just ask you whether you are familiar with the term reality check, which is hopefully up on the board there. Reality check. Sometimes you hear that term. People say, I was given a real reality check. The definition of a reality check is a reminder of the true as opposed to the imagined state of affairs. So it's a reminder of the true as opposed to the imagined state of affairs. And if you think about that, that kind of infers that when you get a reality check, you're not living in truth. You're actually living in some sort of fake reality. And I kind of think it's interesting that last year, the word of the year, does anyone know what it was? Or the term of the year? Post-truth. So Oxford Dictionary came out with their word of the year, as they always do, and it was post-truth. And basically that means where emotion and rhetoric are more important than truth. And it's interesting because, you know, we've heard of alternate facts as a kind of new buzzword. We've seen a whole bunch of, I guess, fake book fakeness in our lives, a bunch of Twitter tantrums and all that. I don't know what it does to you, but to me it's just like I've got this kind of deep yearning to know, well, what is really going on in the world? What is really going on? around me you know what is truth what is reality because it just seems to be so much counterfeit fakeness small kind of veneer kind of thin veneer stuff going on and kind of i don't know it just puts a yearning within me that's going you know what is true what is real you know we might even uh, look around at our own lives you know our jobs our careers our house our staff our families and all the hours that we're spending on various things and we might well go you know we'll do a reality check there and go is this is this stuff true? Is this stuff real? Is this stuff meaningful? Like, will it have any long-lasting benefits? Like the Lord Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. It was so cool what Rudgie's done because I did not put him up to that, and yet he will quickly see that it perfectly fits with what I'm going to talk about today. Um, and so when we're going reality check, reality check, well, reality check on all our stuff. Like, is it, is it storing up treasures? Is it seeking first the kingdom? Of God, or is it doing something else? And there's really something shocking about a reality check. Uh, this week, had a little bit of reality check just with my uh, my job. I love my job. It's one of the best jobs I've ever had. I've got an awesome team. 
I love serving those guys. I love working with them, flying an awesome helicopter, the best battlefield helicopter in the world. It's so great. Uh, and then, but then there was talk and rumours about maybe someone else is going to be doing that job in the future. It's like, oh, that's a bit of a reality check. <laughs> uh, once when I was flying uh, in Alabama, I used to love flying down to this place called Florala, which was on the Florida border. We'd fly out of uh, Fort Rucker or the area around Fort Rucker. Um, fly down to Florala, and the reason I used to go down there all the time was because the guy that did the refuels, he was a civilian guy, and they're very patriotic over there, I love that, and so he would have all these free nachos and hot dogs and everything, so you could go and sample those uh, once you got the refuel and you had to throw in a quick, I don't know, dollar bill or something as a donation, so I was always going down there, always coming back, wiping hot dog mustard off my face, getting in trouble off the tradies because fire ants would get into the aircraft, but this one time, because it was a fair way away, we had to go really fast. So I'm going really, really fast in the Blackhawk, heading home. All, all of a sudden, there's this massive, just really enjoying kind of life, you know. I think, this is great, going really fast in the helicopter. Next thing, boom, thump, like that whole aircraft just shuddered and threw itself up into the air and threw itself back down. And, of course, I did what every instructor does is looked at the you know, student and said, what did you do? <laughs> he said, I didn't do anything. So I'm taking over, I'm taking over, and there's this beeping and lights going off and stuff like that. My heart's going boom, 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 boom. And, you know, kind of the, tr- the training kind of kicks in, and I'm, like, looking around. And there on the caution panel, I could see that the stabilator had malfunctioned and come out of auto mode, which means it'll drive down about uh, three degrees. It doesn't appear, it's a big uh, uh, horizontal wing at the back of the helicopter. So it's, it's controlled by kind of poor man's computer, goes up and down as required to give you stability. Well, that had driven down a bit. And as it drove down, it basically pushed the nose down uh, kind of quite violently. And so well, anyway, we went through our checklist action, sorted out, went home, landed without further incident. But that was a reality check. I was like, well, I've got to be careful. This machine's cool, but it's also dangerous at times. You know, recently we've been thinking a lot about uh, our family because Gabby is, you know, at that age where she'll probably be leaving. It was kind of weird because our family portrait sits under the aircon and the air conditioner leaked on it. Um, I was really enjoying that aircon until that time. Another reality check, reality check of, you know, our family fundamentally changing. It's the nature of life. You know, it's not going to stay that way. And I don't know if you realise this, but revelation is the ultimate reality check, the ultimate kind of shock check. I don't know if you've ever just read it. Instead of reading it, why don't you move in with it for a while? You know what I mean? Why don't don't you, over the next, I don't know, couple of months, just purpose to read it and just to sit with it and think about it and just sort of do what I'm going to do today, which is hold it up to our lives as a reality check. Because it's amazing when rather than just reading through it and going, oh, what's this mean and what's that mean? You just sort of pray through it and then try to juxtapose it against your own life. It's amazing the effect that it has when you actually move in with it and think about it and soak in it. Um, There's crazy stuff going on back there today. Anyway, so uh, Revelation, as I said, the ultimate reality check. It's the ultimate reminder of what is true and lasting and eternal as opposed to what is very, very temporary. And you might just say, well, how? Because it seems to be a very unreal book. It's a book full of what you can easily perceive as crazy metaphors, symbols, signs, you know, people that, the things that people argue over. Well, what I want to do today is something very simple. I'm going to use the Washington Post. It's an article. And this is, uh, you can see a picture there. It was an article on the most expensive home currently, which was a few weeks ago. It may not still be there. Sorry, it's been snapped up, guys. Uh, <laughs> It looks like a hotel, but it's not. It's one house. It's about 11,000 square metres. Okay? It, it, as of a few weeks ago, it was the most expensive home for sale in America. 
I'll take guesses later as to how much you think it is. But for now, a quick description. It's four levels. As I said, 11,000 square metres in Bel Air, California. It's got 270-degree field of view looking at the mountains, the ocean, and the Los Angeles skyline. The developer, Bruce Mikowski, built it saying he wanted to create the most luxurious home in the United States. He said, I saw the opportunity because people spend so much time on their toys. Planes, boats, yachts. You all do that, don't you? Spend a lot of time on your planes, your boats, and your yachts. But they live in a home 12 hours a day. Obviously, he's angling at a particular demographic. He said in a home phone interview that this should be the best it can possibly be, a place you never want to leave. So the garage, if you have a look down the bottom, uh, the garage has uh, 12 antique limited edition cars. It's got a Mercedes 540K, a Bugatti, a Rolls-Royce, a Bentley. The Mercedes cost $15 million by itself. It's a 1936 one. Um, the whole garage is worth about $30 million plus. There's a four-lane bowling alley. There's a James Bond-themed movie theatre. By the way, the house comes with a lot of staff. The staff are, come with the house. So there's a masseuse in the massage room. But my favourite is actually the pool, uh, which you can see at the front there, and I'll just give you a bit of a close-up. So the pool has this screen that rises up out of the water. So, you know, you're just swimming along, and you think, hey, I haven't watched SpongeBob SquarePants today. I'd really like to watch that. Press the button. Up comes the screen, and you can just watch it while you're paddling about or on one of the deck chairs with the champers. And so Mikowski, the designer, he says, um, we've thought of everything. It really touches every sense that makes you feel special. It really touches every sense that makes you feel special. Now, I know this is an extreme version of uh, loving a house. And, you know, obviously Australians have a real love affair with houses and things. And the house could be anything, guys, okay? I'll just put my cards on the table as I go through Revelation. It could be anything that you hold more dear than the living Lord Jesus, okay? There's nothing wrong with a house like that um, in its proper context as a gift. But it's a very poor God, a very poor God, a very poor master. And you might go, well, I'm never going to ever have a house like that, and that's not really an issue for me. But you do want houses, don't you? You do want something nice to live in. You do want a nice car. You do want those things. But the trouble is, is our world, our culture, is, it's, it's exemplified by the email. The top email that I got today was, uh, how would two new Range Rovers look in your garage? That was the title. You know, like it's, it's all this advertising, everything saying, this is important, this is real, this is what you should spend your life force on. But again, Revelation is the ultimate reality check to that. And I really feel that we need to hear that as Christians. You know, what Rudgie said before about the bitumen, what was it? The bitumen oil seam and that guy selling everything he had. What a perfect segue to this. What a perfect um, context kind of driving thing, frame building kind of thing for this whole sermon. So if you're at Revelation 9, what I want you to do is we are going to do something very practical today. We're going to ask, how much is this house worth? All right. Now, okay, so how much do you throw some numbers out? What do you reckon? Did you read the article? Oh, well, you can't. You can't. You've ruined it now. Because, well, I was going to wait until the end. All right, so you've given it away. To, oh, wait a minute, US or Australian? I don't know. I had to see the house. 
oh, was that me gobbing off too early? So that's what happens when I let you know what I'm going to preach on, I guess. But. <laughs> It's 250 million US, but just hold that thought because that's one way of valuing the house, isn't it? So it's about 330 million Australian. Um, but what I want you to do is just take all that, that very rich house, that opulent house, and just hold it up. And we're going to ask how much is it worth as we start to drive our way through Revelation. Revelation chapter 9. You could probably do this in any part of Revelation almost. And I'd really like you to just, again, go back and have a look at Ben's sermon uh, a few weeks ago about the first four trumpets. I'll talk a little bit more about those later. But this is well and truly past the throne room scene where God's final plan, final judgment, uh, final uh, wrath being sort of poured out upon all the evil because he's had enough of evil. He's had enough of little, little babies uh, being aborted. He's had enough of um, kids um, you know, living in broken homes, hunger, famine. He's had enough of that. And it's coming to an end. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got seven days of creation, one day of rest in there. And now you've got these sevens that are decreating the world. And so the question, the real question here is, how real is this house? Is it real enough to stand up to what's happening here? So let me just read, hold that picture in the back of your mind of the $330 million house. And there may be a real estate slump coming on. Revelation 9, the fifth angel sounded his trumpet. These angels are magnificent heavenly beings. I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss and out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth Uh, or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Keep that at the back of your mind. The seal of God. How much would that be worth? So you're sitting on your your, your deck chair there, and suddenly there's this supernatural rift, and, and bad stuff starts coming out. Monsters. They were not given power to kill them, but only torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Verse 7. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. So these are demonic beings. They are intelligent. They have power. Their hair was like... Women's hair and their teeth was like, uh, were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had as a king over them the angel of the abyss whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek Apollyon. This is uh, a terrifying scene. He's strange demonic beings horse-sized beings but it gets worse verse 12 the first woe is past two other woes are yet to come two other trumpets the sixth angel sounded his trumpet and i heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before god it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet release the four angels who are bound at the great river euphrates and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. 
the number of the mounted troops was 200 million. So somehow these four angels in a supernatural kind of scene morph into 200 million strange demonic creatures. And I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were um, fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulfur that came out of their mouths and the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails for their tails were snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see, hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. So again, how much is that house worth? How much is your life worth? The things that you value worth when you hold it up to that you know like it's so easy to get caught up into the minutiae and detail of what all those things mean and completely forget that they are there for a reason they are there to shock us they are there deliberately so that we would hold up our lives to those things and go will they last this all comes under the heading of a theme through bible called uh, the day of the lord the day of the lord and that's the day of judgment that's the day when the earth in a sense is decreated That is the uh, day when everything is called to an account. And the thing about judgment is that it's not just this sort of punitive thing where people get their just desserts. Judgment in the Bible always reveals the true state of everything. The true state of your hearts. The true state of your desires and affections. It's all laid open in this moment. And again, like you know, with a house like that or with a desire and affection um, funneling down onto something like that, will it stand? You know, the interesting thing about Revelation is, do you know what's called Revelation? Because of this verse here, Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, where it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, which must soon take place. And Revelation, in the Greek, it's a really interesting word. It just literally means apocalypsis. And we often think of apocalypse now or whatever as this sort of judgment thing. But back in the day, back in the Greek day, back in... When this was written, apocalypse just meant an unveiling, a disclosing. It's literally like, uh, imagine the sky as a big stage and, the, and, the, and the, reality, the curtains of reality are ripped back so that you can see the supernatural, you can see the spiritual. You know, right now, all we can see with these photon sensing devices are photons that are coming from three-dimensional reality. We know there are things that are invisible. We can pick them up in the electromagnetic sphere, but this is even beyond that. This is beyond that. And what Revelation does is it says, this is the way things really are. It's a reality check. Now, we just read about angels with trumpets, an abyss, Apollyon, locust-like horses with human faces. And later on, we're going to read about beasts and dragons. And you might well be going, how does that reveal anything? It seems so confusing. But I want to say something, I guess, Kind of simple, but also profound. It took me months to come to this as I moved in with Revelation. I'm going to make this statement. It's pretty profound. Here we go, okay? Again, what if the things in Revelation are the way things really are? What if the way things in Revelation... What if the things in Revelation are the way things really are? And what I'd like to do is try and illustrate it with a bit of an illustration. 
okay, a picture. So I just want you to imagine that you're, you belong to a church, a great church. It's another modern-day parable, maybe. You've got a great guy, and he lives on your street. Great family. They seem so lovely, so nice. And, you know, you walk past their house sometimes. You see the light on it. seems so happy and all that kind of stuff. But then one night, you're walking past, you start hearing screaming. And you start hearing terrible things. And you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You ring the police. And the police come and they take this guy away. And you go and try and comfort the family and the woman and, and, and the wife and so forth. And she says this to you. As you say, look, what's going on with, let's call him Bob. What's going on with Bob? We thought he was such a nice, we thought you guys were okay. She goes, no, Adrian. That man is a pig of a man. That man is a pig of a man. In that moment, do I then go... Excuse me, um, pig, uh, four legs, little curly tail, and then start to you know, break down the little pig. That's not how language works. Or we might, might even just draw it. Oh, so he's like this? That's not how language works. Now, in that moment, you, you, you all got, you got it straight away, didn't you? You got it in a, and you felt it. You didn't just get it in the head, you felt it. Well, what if Revelation works exactly the same way? Because I believe it does. So when you see these strange creatures... And, and nations called beasts, it begins to say to you, you know, rather than this nice, sweet culture that you think you live in, it's actually a consuming culture. It's a beast of a culture. It's a monster of a culture. And what if more than that, Revelation is constantly saying to us, you've got two choices. You can follow the kingdom of monsters or you can follow the kingdom of God. You know, we've probably got one of the best cultures in the world, but even it has real issues in terms of this a growing divide between poor and rich, and that, that then means all, so, all sorts of socio-economic problems, all sorts of terrible sins. Um, you know, these, these consuming kind of cultures, the Bible just sees them as monsters. And it's interesting because you've already seen it with the house, the, the million-dollar house. How does the Bible see that? <laughs> literally as grist for the mill, literally as, as fuel for the fire. And, you know, with these beasts these nations and so forth. It doesn't matter in Revelation whether it's Egypt or Babylon or Rome or a future Rome. If they are not following the ways of God, then they, are a, they, they will. If not already, they will become a beastly type of nation where they're consuming, using up people, destroying people. And these hidden monsters in Revelation are just waiting to be unmasked. And so really the whole of Revelation including Revelation 9, is this constant refrain of, will you choose the kingdom of God or will you choose the kingdom of monsters? Will you choose the kingdom of the Lamb or will you choose the kingdom of the earth? And you might say it's a bit extreme to see it that way, but by being extreme, by being in your face, it gets your attention, doesn't it? It got my attention. And, you know, as we, as we go through this, just remember Jesus' concern. We are never, ever out of range of the first couple of chapters of Revelation and the seven churches. Esparticipal, Esparticipal, E-S-P-T-S-P-L, that's how I remember them. So the seven churches, you remember? E stands for, S stands for, Myrna, P stands for, Pergamum, yep. I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember the next one. T stands for, Thyatira, S stands for, Sardis, P stands for Philadelphia, and L, Laodicea. See, now you remember the seven churches. So the kingdom of life we're going to see in in Revelation as we keep going is this kingdom of God, kingdom of the Lamb, 
It's got rivers. It's got trees of life. It's got immortality. But the kingdom of man, the kingdoms of the world, are just heading towards death and destruction. And so when you, um, as we just go through Revelation 9 here shortly, and we're going to do it in a kind of a sweeping kind of way, remember what Jesus said to the churches because he's still saying it to us. Remember his, even his parables. Go back to Matthew 24 and, and see what's on his heart for the churches. It's that you will not give up, that you will not cave in or sell out. I was running with Johanna the other day and she goes, oh, isn't selling out and caving in the same thing? I said, maybe not really because we were running up this hill. Oh, it was quite steep actually, you know, I think about it. And running up it and I said, listen, you know, caving in would be going, man, this hill's hard. You know God wants you to get to the top of it as a bit of a metaphor. He wants you to get to the top of it, but... You just, after what's the pain's too much, you give in. That's caving in. Could be the same in your Christian walk or run. Or you see a nice sweet lemonade stall on the side there and you know all that sugar's not going to be good for you, but man, you're thirsty. And so you sell out in a sense. You stop and you actually got heaps of energy left, but you just want to enjoy that enticement for a while. That's the same thing that Jesus is warning the churches about. You could cave in or you could sell out. Remember some of the the things he said, repent and do the things you did at first, don't sell out. Remember your first love, don't sell out. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life, don't cave in. I hold a few things against you, the teaching of Balaam, you're holding to that, that was sexual perversion and idolatry, don't sell out, don't get enticed by that. But our world isn't that sexualized now, is it? We're okay. But you know, we, we could easily easily fall into that and then we we rupture that precious red hot monogamy kind of relationship we have with our wives or our wives with our husbands that's terrible kids see it wake up he says strengthen what remains and is about to die again don't cave in hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown don't cave in so you want to make your you know your faith hope and love cave in proof and sell out proof Move in with revelation. Just move in with revelation and hold it up to your lives. Undeceive. It's actually a word. Again, if you want to cave in proof or um, sell out proof, your faith, hope and love, we've got to undeceive. We've got to see things that the way they really are. That's why I got you to hold the house up, which hopefully represented those things that could entice you, because we're probably more likely to be enticed in our culture than actually caving in. Other cultures may well cave in when they're heavily persecuted. And so what we're going to do really quickly, I'm just going to let Revelation stand for itself. I'm just going to do Operation Reality Check with you, okay? So we're actually going to just go back to uh, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 8, because I want to flow through the seven trumpets. Well, there'll be six, really. And I want us to do a reality check. And I just want to ask you some questions as I read through Revelation. So Revelation 8, 7. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. It was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, you don't need to know whether these are nukes or not. You just need to do a reality check. How's that house going for you? How's that mansion going for you? You're starting to get a little bit worried. It's exactly what's supposed to happen. Even with your own potential death and suffering, even if it's on the micro scale rather than the macro scale, it is there to make you afraid so that you might turn and soften and turn towards the Lord Jesus. He loves you too much to let you live in a farce. So is this house real enough to outlast the revelation of hail, fire and blood? 
Verse 8, the second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So again, is your house going to outlast that? Is your mansion going to outlast that? You need to do a reality check. Is it real enough, true enough to outlast the revelation of a huge mountain falling from the sky? This is like the pig of a man thing. A mountain all ablaze. Ten, a falling star. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the river and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Again, do a reality check. So interesting, so much of this mirrors the Exodus, the plagues of the Exodus. And what did Exodus do, really? It showed the Israelites that this wasn't their home. It wasn't going to last. and It was under condemnation in many ways. Now, we believe as Christians that this earth is going to undergo a renovation. It is our heart and our life. But right now, it is in a temporary fragile state. It is not yet in its permanent state, its lasting state. We need to come out of that. God calls us out of that. Not so much to go and live in monasteries or go to heaven early, but not to become a part of it. Again, what do you put your faith in? What do you put your hope in? If it's something like this, then Revelation 8.12 says, The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. So the third of them turned dark. Back in Genesis, it was, Let there be light, magnificent light, glorious light, glorious creation. Now God is taking back his property. He's taking back his light. Again, do a reality check. That helicopter on the roof, what's going to happen? Whoa, whoa, whoa. In 13, end of chapter 8, it's a transition to the last three trumpet blasts. You always see that pattern with the sevens in Revelation, the first four, and then a ratcheting up, an increase, an escalation. Whoa is actually onomatopoeic. I don't know if you realise that. So an onomatopoeic word is, um, sounds, sounds like you would uh, say it, kind of like, a, like it almost sounds like what it's trying to describe. So when it goes whoa... In the Hebrew, uh, or sorry, the Greek, it's sort of like, ah, it's like, ugh. Kind of sounds a bit funny, but it's like, you know, if someone smacks you in the face, you go, ugh. That's, that's what it is. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, and wh- why is there woe? Because, like, if that is your hope, that house, that mansion, maybe it's your family. They can't save you in this moment. Woe, 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 alas, there's misery, grief coming. And now we're into uh, Revelation 9, the fifth trumpet, a falling star, a breach opens between the natural and the supernatural. You, you know, you're sipping champers in the pool, maybe. And the next thing is these demonic creatures stampeding through your house. Thundering hooves, thundering chariots, that's what they sound like. Look at the vicious sting of a scorpion. They're wearing something like crowns of gold, so they have this sort of authority about them. They're human faces. They have personalities, evil, twisted personalities. Lion's teeth. They have an emperor. His name is Abaddon, Napoleon. Some people think that's Satan. Not really made clear there. Whatever he is, he's not a nice fellow. He's bent on destruction. He's been held back, literally, by God until this time. He's been worshipped behind the scenes. Do you realise that? The Bible tells us that, um, that 
when the pagans or non-Christians, as they used to call them back then, were worshipping idols. They're actually worshipping demons. And isn't it interesting now what the demons are doing to them? Nice way to pay back our worship, guys. It's terrible. But again, it shows the reality. God is showing the reality of what you're worshipping. It's horrific. Imagine that stampeding horde and the agony for five months. And isn't it interesting that those that are sealed... We'll talk about that in a minute. Those that are sealed are sealed from this, but they're not sealed from the next one, from death. And I think that actually says to us, we don't have to be afraid of death. We might still be, but don't be afraid of death. Don't be afraid of death. Because when death comes for a Christian, what was the worst day of their life becomes the best day of their life. That mansion, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Because in heaven, what's on the streets there? Bitumen made of gold. <laughs> They're the things that are incredibly valuable. Imagine this mansion like made completely of gold. I mean, that would be worth, what, billions of dollars? There's streets of it. So imagine how much better the new heavens and the new earth will be. Anyway, holding that up again. We've got one more trumpet. You, you kind of feel like it's just like, oh, stop it. <laughs> Don't you? That's what you're supposed to feel. Um, and yet this reality check this is a real warning for us now it doesn't stop them from worshipping things you know all of this stuff God could have just wiped them out with a you know with a thermonuclear kind of demolecularizing kind of gone done if he'd done that they wouldn't have the chance to turn and we are libertarianly free creatures we get to choose either to love or not to love and as a result God deals with us and respects our libertarian freedom but he doesn't let us get away with it for too long if it has taken us down a destructive path. And so all these things come because he loves us enough. Even five months of torment would be better than destruction, wouldn't it? And yet here it says they don't stop worshipping. In Greek, that means, um, so I'm just reading from 20 and 21. They don't stop worshipping. In Greek, that means to, uh, to kiss and adore, to worship, to do obscience, to show respect respect to fall or prostrate before that you know they're sacrificing their time they're giving up certain hours perhaps with family or other way around to 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 achieve their goals and what's the real nature of what they worship it's these horrible beings and how do their, their idols make them feel it's really interesting when you look at study idolatry through the old testament and particularly have a look at second kings at another time second kings 17 it's like the summary of all of israel and, and all their idolatry and stuff. And he shows that there they're still rejecting God's decrees, even when um, similar kinds of things have happened on a smaller scale to them as happens in Revelation. They still persist in their former practices. And so, you know, I've many times heard preachers try to draw a connection between idols then and idols now. And rightly so, they'll say, you know, things that take up your time, things that you love, anything that, you know, that's not God, that you make sacrifices, anything as I heard one preacher say, is that it's a good thing that becomes a God thing, becomes an idol. But what I decided to do this time was I just thought, what are all these idols they used to and gods that they used to worship? So I went through all the names, and their names are what they are. Okay, And so you get all these sort of interesting uh, inflections on what they are. And I thought, okay, so if this is what they are, then what would the Israelites and all the nations around have felt when they, um, when they worship? So... I could show you in more detail later, I don't want to spend too much time, but they would have felt love and affection. 
They literally would have felt love and affection. So much so that they were willing to sacrifice their children, their little babies. They got meaning. They got identity um, from their idols and their gods. So they would literally become, you know, Baalites or whatever. They named themselves. You see many names in the Bible that are named after Baal and other gods. They, they would have felt a sense of relief and salvation from their troubles. They would have felt a sense of hope, a sense of security. They even would have uh, felt wealth and prosperity coming their way because many of these gods were fertility gods or um, you know, gods of the land and so forth, bringing them prosperity. And of course, at times, there was out-and-out, out, untamed, unbounded, illegitimate sexual um, activity. So these religious rites often had sexual immorality going. So you can imagine all the things that they would have felt about their gods. And what's really interesting is you take all those feelings, feelings of meaning, identity, hope, wealth, prosperity, sexual immorality, and they're all here now because we human beings are still the same. And the Lord Jesus in Revelation is desperately saying, this is the way things really are. This is the way they really are. Do you really want to worship stuff? Do you really want to worship idols? You know, a demon just means uh, in the original Hebrew and the Greek was a god, a deity, anything spoken of uh, as being a god other than God himself. So all these little gods that are worshipped because all they are in their true nature is what? What have we seen? Destruction, death, torment. Oh, thank you. And it's so sad here because, in, again, in Revelation 9.20, they don't stop worshipping. By that time, they become so hard, they don't stop worshipping these things. You know what that means? To me, it means right now is the day of grace. Right now is the day of salvation. Right now is the day when they'll probably listen. Just like, you know, Raji experience. On that day, they may well not listen. God's still not done. You'll see the rest of Revelation. He's still not done. He's going to keep coming for them. But how much more should we live a life now that is a witness and speak the good message? Anyway, it gets worse. The sixth trumpet, trumpet, verses 13 to 19. More monsters, more unmasking of the true nature of the supernatural. In this case, it's four angels that were bound. They're not good angels. Good angels don't get bound up. Okay, They're evil angels. And these bad angels, again, they're held back. It's so interesting because in Job... We're told there that Satan was held back from uh, hurting Job until God said, okay, for my own purposes, I'll lift my hand for a while of protection. Same thing now. These demons would right now ravage the earth if they could, but they're held back. And when they come out, they kill a third of humankind, like I said, morphing into 200 million monsters, sulfur-like armor, vicious lion-like heads, able to spew fire, smoke, sulfur. That's what they kill with. Tails like serpents, able to injure and kill as well. But it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting because, again, the sealed ones are protected from torment but not from death. Again, death isn't something to be feared for a sealed one. So consider now, as we get to the end of this sermon, the house, the car, the things, the people that might entice you away from growing in your faith, growing in your hope, growing in love. Will they be able to stand? Can they save you? Can they protect you? Can that house protect you? You know, despite the carnage, Revelation tells us again that God is bringing it about so there might be redemption, so that we might see the true nature of things. Judgment brings reality. Judgment brings an undeceiving dynamic. 
It undoes what um, Satan has done. And with all that said, like, how would that mansion... I mean, it's, it's a rhetorical question, I know. How would that mansion stand up? It doesn't stand up. But again, you could go, well, how about that argument you're having with such and such? Or how about that, uh, that thing that's really frustrating you? Or that thing that's making you a bit bitter? Does it really matter in the light of this? Does it really matter? Maybe it doesn't. And you know, what's interesting, an atheist would actually agree with everything I've said, believe it or not. They would believe with the spirit. They would believe the spirit of what I've said. Because what I've said is exactly what they would say in a scientific way, is that all of you are headed for death and destruction. So is the universe. No one's disagreeing. What we're saying, though, is all that has a purpose. And the purpose is, will you turn and will you get ready for the new heavens and the new creation? Revelation's getting in our face for a very good reason. This is where I was going to say, how much was that house worth? And then I was going to you know, give you the $250 million. That's actually in US. That's more, by the way, than the GDP of Nauru. Um, but how much is it really worth? Like even that, those five months of torment, how much would you do for the, how much would you pay for the seal? I reckon you'd give that house up in an instant. And again, that shows the true nature. How much would that seal be worth that Revelation talks about? And I guess that really is the greatest reality, the greatest reality check. The greatest reality check is that that seal is available to everyone, everyone that will refuse to bow the knee to the kingdom of monsters, to the kingdom of the world that wants to devour and consume. The greatest reality is that this judgment is the judgment of the Lamb. Why does Revelation call it the judgment or the wrath of the Lamb? Because Jesus has died as a Lamb. And it's like the writer wants you to get that this is not a a, a dictatorial king sitting on a throne just like Zeus, just... This is a king who has died... Nothing that happens in Revelation is worse than what happened to the Son of God when he hung, tortured and dying, crown of thorns in the scalp, back torn to shreds, utterly anguished, completely wretched, thoroughly afflicted, and he cried, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's what he cried out. Those that won't bend the knee to that consuming culture, that culture of destruction and death, but instead will bend the knee to the Lord Jesus and follow him for the rest of their lives. That's so sweet. It's like, it's like he puts his mark on you. And you're protected. Like how much is that worth? It's worth going and getting a bank loan, buying that whole kind of you know, property out where that treasure's hidden. As Rudgie reminded us before. You know, Mikowski, the designer, he said, we've thought of everything. It really touches every sense that makes you feel special. I would give up that house in an instant just to see the face of the God who died for me on a cross because he makes me feel way more special than some lousy house. Amen. 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 I just want to finish off with a psalm. And I guess the application of today is don't cave in, don't sell out. You know, go away today and do your own little reality check. Maybe move in with Revelation for a while. Think about all the stuff that's happening in your own life. Think about what's really important. Psalm 130. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? 
but with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord. You know, as the world gets darker, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope, maybe as, as you, you confront death or death is coming for you or illness or whatever. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. You know, this is a guy who knew what it was to have to confront death and illness, to, to be worried and scared. You can just imagine him in the, in the middle of the night, just awake because he can't sleep. Just, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. And then he cries out, Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And so I finish off my sermon today with the way I want to finish every sermon this year, which is, to ask the question, which seems particularly poignant today, why did the house on the sand fall flat? It was built on the sand. When the storm came, it fell flat. Why? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds beat and blew against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. That's the reality check of God's word for us today as a church. And now I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this reality check. And though it's hard and in our face, Lord, we want to soften, not harden. So help us in that, O oh Lord. You've died for us on a cross. You live for us right now. You haven't left us alone. And though terrible times are coming, you have promised that you will see us through. And I thank you for that. Thank you for that seal. I pray that each one here would be sealed and many more to come in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.